Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. Welcome into another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Uh, we are so excited today uh, to have made a connection through Twitter to somebody who is really just changing the game of speech and language therapy, um, literally. And, and so we're going to talk, get a chance to talk about that. Uh, our guest today uh, is hailing from South London, and her name is Werda Farah. Uh, she is a speech and language therapist and founder of Language Waves. Uh, Language Waves specializes in using an array of methods to provide culturally diverse therapeutic input for schools and local communities. Uh, the service was specifically set up to address the barriers that minority families face when accessing speech and language therapy services. And so again, we are so excited to have you here. Welcome into Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I'm excited to be here. So why don't we jump right into um, some conversation here. Um, I, uh, Lisette and I um, have kind of uh, been following you on Twitter uh, through there. We kind of uh, were doing some other searches and we saw a recent presentation that you did from uh, even the beginning of this year. Um, and there was a phrase that you used that I had not really heard before. And so I'm going to give you the credit for it, okay? Um, uh, as having coined this phrase of language violence, um, that you talked about having experienced it as a kid. Can you, let's jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of that phrase and how it fits into some of the work uh, that you've done as a speech and language therapist? Yeah, I'm... I'm sure there's some sort of linguist or social linguist out there that has probably coined that phrase before me. Um, but for me, it was something that I felt in terms of, right now I'm at a stage in my life where I'm looking back at my history. So, and, and I feel like I can see it with more clarity. And there are moments in my life where I know that for, for a large part, I experienced this thing called language violence, where when I spoke in my white voice, um, I was safe and I was good. And when I was me in my full expression, whether that is with my body, whether it was with my hands or whether it was just talking how I want to talk, um, I experienced a violence in a way that was um, sort of like demeaning, telling me that I was not, not any good, um, that I need to change how I speak. Literally, sometimes I was told I, I need to change how I speak. Um, and I suppose we kind of connote, connote violence with something physical. But for me, I think it's, it, it, it's, it's the violence that happens to you that's not physical, that hurts more sometimes because you don't even know when it's happening to you. When somebody punches you or kicks you, you feel it instantly, you know it, you can see the bruise. When you experience things um, such as language violence where you know, people make you feel less than for how you speak, mm. um, it's, it's, it's something that you don't even know it's happening at the time as, as a child. It, it, it forms you, it develops you. And it's only when you get to a point in your own development, maybe as an adult or you're reflecting that you realize how violent people have been to you and how you've been taking those hits emotionally and, and psychologically. So that's, that's what I feel language violence is to me. Mm. You know, and 
as we were listening, um, you've said that SLT, the SLT profession is um, biopolitical, colonial, and racist. Can you explain that a little bit? And, you know, given your experience, is that what made you want to become an SLT? So I'll, I'll start off with when I became SLT, I didn't know it was biopolitical, colonial and racist. I didn't know that. <laughs> sure. I thought I was doing um, a service. I thought I was doing social good. Um, my training told me to believe that there was such a thing as a communication difficulty, that some children were born with these disorders and these difficulties. And I was trained to find deficit in communication. And so I, I actually did do that. And I did practice in those ways that committed language violence onto others because we do, you know, what's happened to us, we do to others. And so I, I, I use my professional power to, to do those things. Um, and then it was that, you know, it, the, the, I got to a very early stage in my career, probably three months after qualifying, I was working in, in, in the National Health Service and things just didn't feel right to me. So, for example, I would be with clients and we would just be talking and I'd want to find out more about their lives but I, there wasn't enough time in an appointment and there was just this feeling that I thought something's not quite right here because I keep seeing black and brown families being referred for communication difficulties but when they're with me I feel I totally get them and I don't think the, this is an issue of communication. I think this is an issue of systematic racism, of poverty, of um, the ill health. Or, so I could see all these other things and not the communication. Um, and so I left, I left that National Health Service and I thought, let me go work for a private provider. So that's somebody who has their own company. Maybe there's you know, more freedom to, to, to practice and learn um, how I want to do that. And so when I was in that company, the same thing happened. It was in, it was in South London and I was in um, what you would call like high school. So children that were from the age of 12 to 15, 16. Once again, the, the caseload was black and brown children, mostly Afro-Caribbean boys. And I was thinking, well, why am I putting these boys through this system where I'm using a standardized language assessment? Mm. They're failing that standardized language assessment the areas that they fail in, I train them on. So when we retake, and then I give them some therapy. So when we retake that test, they've gone up, but it just didn't seem right. So I left that job as well. Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I just, I left that job. Well, I was kind of, kind of pushed out because what happened was once I realized that this the, th the assessments didn't work for those children and the therapy didn't work for those children. I thought, well, what do they need? So I just started spending time with them and working on goal setting and, and self-esteem and confidence and just allowing them to use their own voice. And like for the first time in my life, I was actually listening to children rather than imposing my professional will on them. And it was through that that I learned that actually these children just have their own code mm. and every has their own code and so because I don't have access to that code doesn't mean that that code is, is at a deficit. Oh my goodness you know in um, one of our very first episodes I talk about um, how I really feel like my bilingualism was stripped away from me um, because I remember being a, a little girl and having to translate in meetings um, for my parents right so that they could communicate with my teachers 
And even though my, my teacher never said anything disparaging, like explicitly, um, the fact that she didn't even acknowledge, you know, what I was doing, you know, fills me with shame. And you're a little kid and you don't know how to process that. But I just remember feeling extremely embarrassed, uncomfortable. And I really forged a school identity and a home identity. And I wish that I would have had even just a little bit of, of acknowledgement that, you know, it's great that I could speak two languages or anything, um, but I really um, became uncomfortable to speak Spanish in public settings, in, in formal settings, I should say. I, I'm, I mean, I experienced the same thing, and I guess it's these kind of um, languages that there's like a totem pole of you know, French, and this is like the best. So if you speak, yeah, you're bilingual. That's amazing. We love that. But if you speak low, so I would say prestigious languages, those European languages that are valued, and then low prestige languages. So like Amharic and Somali and Arabic, and, you know, it's not, it's not seen as a skill. It's not seen as a, as something that's like, that's an important language. And I, I felt the same. I felt very ashamed because I, I spoke multiple languages. And at school, I wouldn't speak any of those languages. And if my grandma would pick me up and want to speak to me in whatever language, I wouldn't acknowledge her as a child. Wow, yeah. There was this shame and guilt associated with my mm-hmm. white teacher or my, my not, <laughs> even my black friends from you know different backgrounds seeing me speak these um languages it right. made me less than and I, and I and I had this preference for English is the language of um success and English is the language of what a normal person is mm-hmm. yeah you know so it's funny you literally just used a phrase right the idea of English as the language of success uh, Lissette mentioned earlier we we have a PD that we've done a couple of times that we've entitled language of success elevating languages other than, and, and even the phrase standard English, right, um, is, uh, is wrapped in some politics itself, right? Who sets that standard? Can you talk a little bit, you know, perhaps now from an adult perspective, um, how much was language really tied to identity? I think for us, it's something we talk about a lot. Uh, I, was, I was always told um, that I, I spoke white, and you, you also have used the phrase, right? That white voice. And, um, and I think for a long time, I understood that to mean that I spoke what we have defined as eloquently, or I spoke, you know, but it's always tied to these, these positive, right, concepts. And that's white, which then inherently defines anything not else. that as the opposite can you talk a little bit about kind of what 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 has your experience been with that moving from childhood into adulthood and in the field in which you practice yeah um, as so so, so I, I, i'll tell you one thing as a as a child um my grandma lived with us and she's a huge influence in my life and i remember um when, when i grew up i would um at home i'd speak my home languages and then at school, I'd speak English. But they got to a, a point when I was about four or five where I, where I made a conscious decision to, I like speaking English. So I'd speak English at home. And my grandma had this whole big thing about, no, you speak your languages. Your languages are you. I don't want you to lose your language. And I remember as a child thinking, what's she, what is she talking about? 
as an adult, I am so grateful that my grandmother yes. was in that home and made me because she did she she made me speak these these languages and now that I speak these languages not only am I connected to family and friends and people in in East Africa across the world I even have a different personality in my languages so it's it, it, it's me it's, so so I I feel so I, I feel so blessed that my grandma was in my life and she just kept going at me and actually my my Amharic my Somali it's like I speak like traditional mm. because I'm that person there I never I never valued it but today I value it so much and so that's why it's so important whenever I'm with children I want to know what languages do you speak and I want them to to bring it to me and I and I almost kind of praise them for it because I go wow you speak this and you speak this and you speak that because that is an asset and yes. it is an identity because it's you know it's a whole it, it's a whole nother person you're a whole nother person when you when you when you're when you're, when you're speaking those um languages and yeah you know it's interesting you say that I often talk about how thankful I am you know on a very superficial level I understand more jokes, right? We're um, <laughs> a digital <laughs> generation. So I get twice the funny memes, right? Because it's in two languages or um, even that idea of having a different identity based on the language that I speak. Um, I'm a mother, I have two little beautiful boys and I mother them in Spanish. Like when I'm showing love and affection, my default is to do it in Spanish. Um, and th I think that is so critical that when we place judgment on a language or even a dialect, um, we're not just passing judgment on that individual, but on their whole community and in the way that they experience love and affection. So we have to be very careful about, you know, love elevating one over the other. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking too, you, you mentioned just in when you had first started uh, as a speech and language therapist, um, that you found yourself just not having enough time. Um, I'll just drop this here and then I've got a question, but there's a really interesting TED talk by Brittany Cooper called The Racial Politics of Time. Um, and in it, she kind of talks about how time itself um, has an impact that is disparate based on on your racial identity. Um, the amount of time, based on your, your socioeconomic status, right? The amount of time you get to spend working versus the amount of time that you get to spend living or, 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 or being with family. Leisure time. Man, and so I listened to this TED Talk because I, I pulled it up, I was like, what is she talking about? Time is time, you know, time is linear, but time is not. Time, time has, a, has a social political piece to it as well. So when you talk about taking the time to get to know families or, or even the way we communicate, is it circular? I started listening to myself when I, I actually doing the podcast, I'd go back and I'd hear myself make a point, talk around it, and then come back to finalize it with that point. And for some people, that's a waste of time. But for me, that's my communication style because my mama does it and my daddy, you know, so um, just some of those things I, I think are really interesting. I do you know what I love about that point about time is um, time is really important to me now. And I have more time now than I have ever had before because I make a conscious effort that I need it. 
I, because time to think is so rare in this society and in this world. And to make those leaps and bounds and, and things that I want to do, I have to have time. But, it, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's a capitalist thing. It's negotiating this time because you never have time to think and you never have time to implement the real changes that you, that you want to implement. And you always, it's like you're always on the hamster wheel. And so for me, taking myself away from that, you know, which meant a loss in earnings, but my God, like in terms of my life, it's absolutely amazing. You bring up an excellent point. Actually, Maurice and I, our day jobs were building principles. And um, I often get frustrated by the hamster wheel because to me, time is of the essence, right? Like if I don't have the luxury or the time to rest, to think, to just even take care of myself, um, I really, I really do struggle with that. Um, but to bring it back to this, um, so you you worked for this company, you left, and you started your own, right? You started your own um, a company called Making Waves. Is that my yeah? Language waves. Language, language waves. Look at me making waves. Oh, we the we waves. do make waves though. We do make waves. Well, <laughs> I, I was thinking of the waves I made this week at work. <laughs> So, um, so language waves, can you tell us a little bit about that? Cause I'm, I'm so like excited that you did that. There are times where I think like, what can I do if I step away from my current role? Well, language waves is like my oops, baby. Like it's just, <laughs> it, it was unplanned. It was re- it was really, really unplanned. So as, as I said, when I left that, when I left that second job, I was so disenfranchised with the whole profession. I actually left the profession because I thought it was because I was a rubbish therapist that I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. I left it and I went into um, research at the Stroke Association. So I thought if I can become a researcher, I don't need to work in the politics of people and all these kinds of things. I can do my own thing. So I'm in that and I was planning to, to do a PhD. As I'm planning to do my PhD, I get an email from a previous student that I had worked with that had just got into university. And so this was somebody who um, was was caught up in a lot of things and was failing and nobody had the time for him. And I made sure that I had the time for him. And we did that goal setting and that planning when he was, I think about 14, we planned his future for him because he didn't have anybody else to do that with. And so I got this email where he was just like, Order. I got into university I want to say thank you you know what the work that we did has like really it's all come true and, and it set me up and he at the end of the bottom of that email it's like who else are you helping now question mark and I had to go back to him and go I'm really happy for you but I'm not a speech and language therapist anymore I, like, I don't really believe in the profession I'm doing this and, and so he came back to me and he said like why don't you do it for yourself and he was like, you believed in me. Why don't you believe in yourself? Like, you can do it. And it was like this. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. That is like, beautiful. It was like, you see, you know when people talk about the universe, the universe does things. I was like really set on my, what I was planning to do. I was like ready to go for this. I had left this speech language therapy thing like behind. And it was a full circle moment when he said to me, like you believed in me, why don't you believe in yourself? I thought, it was like an existential crisis because I was like, all this time I've been telling children to believe in themselves. I've never believed in myself, you know? And so for him to say that to me was like, God, have I been a fraud this whole time telling people things that I don't even believe about myself? And how can that, how can that be? So 
language raise is really selfishly all about me and like proving a point to myself. And so when he said to me, he sent me this thing, he said, there's, in the UK, we've got this thing called the Princess Trust, which is like for, for, for young people 16 to before you turn 30, they give you support to set up a business. So they will, you know, give you the training and, and it's um, Prince Charles, is he's the patron of the charity. So, you know, and so I was 29, going to be turning 30. And he sent me the link to the Princess Trust. And so it was like, oh, it's now or never. So I, I mean, it just literally, I just did it not knowing what it was going to be I just I just did it and I, I think a month later I left my job I didn't have <laughs> because I, I am like impulsive I'm a fire sign so I just do things and <laughs> like I made a choice I, ma I made a decision I made a decision I said I'm gonna try this and I'm gonna try and make something out of this for like the next five six months I've got a little bit of money saved up I'm just gonna go for it I don't know what it is I don't even know what I offer that is so special but I'm gonna go and do it and I and yeah and th that's how language waves started and it's coming up to three years now and it's it's transformed me as a person it's been really really I mean it, it's really difficult because the time and effort that you put in before you get anything out you there is there is no there is no money in it and so but there's progress and there's a sense of time and freedom linked to it. And uh, where I say I was very lucky was I don't have any dependents. And so the decision for me was if I run out of money and I don't have anything to eat, well, it's only me that I'm worried about. I'm not, I don't have anybody else to look after. And so it was the right time in my life to do it. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. That's, that's, that's incredible. There's, there's a, there's a, of entrepreneurship in there that we really could explore. Um, my my uh, brother, my older brother, who's a former guest on BBB, is a uh, serial entrepreneur, and he talked about the number of times he he failed before he got there. So we're grateful for you that you you hit that ground running. Um, uh, I, I wanted to ask because um, I, I took note of this again, as Lisette mentioned, we both work um, in elementary schools. Um, and in our buildings, we both have full-time speech and language pathologist. Yeah. And you all, uh, uh, and, and I don't know if it's, a, if it's a UK thing or a choice by you, but I've taken note of speech and language therapist. And I, I think this is incredibly important because I looked up the word pathologist, and I think it speaks a lot to perhaps why you left the field. Um, right, a pathologist is somebody who diagnoses diseases. And so it's this premise, right, that like somebody has a disease in their speech and language as opposed to, yeah, I, I, I don't know. So I, I, I guess, can you talk a little bit about um, um, maybe the way in which you're viewing speech and language therapy differently than a speech and language pathologist, right? Which is what, again, most American schools are using um, or even other SLTs in the UK. Firstly, can I just say, I'll, give, I'll share an interesting fact with you. In the United States, speech and language pathology is the fourth whitest profession in the whole of the United States. After farmers, dentists, lawyers, it's speech language pathologists. I didn't so know that. It's, uh, it, it, it's wow. hell right? <laughs> is really really white okay mm. um 
I don't know why in the UK we we, we called it therapy, but I do know across the world, so like Australia, um, South Africa, all of the other countries, it's pathologists. Um, I don't believe that children, and I say, and when I say children, I say children that are typically developing whatever, have communication difficulties. I believe difficult environments can create a breakdown in communication, which may need to be mediated, but I believe that that's a societal thing and I believe that's an environmental thing. I don't think that that is something innate in a person or in a child. And also, if we go back to the roots of speech and language therapy, which is all about correcting and fixing, it's that that biopolitical aspect is about people, usually minoritized black and brown bodies that, or, or disabled bodies, that do not fit the norm of this kind of like white standard who may not be um, profitable to the economy need to be fixed and sorted out so they can be profitable to the economy. And um, so that's that biopolitical aspect of it. The pathologizing nature of it is, well, in the creation of the profession, well, how are we gonna get clients? You know, we have to create a level of pathology right? That's how we get contracted. That's how we get jobs. That's how we, um, you know, we need bodies. And black and brown bodies is what we use. It's, it's, it's a commodification. If we can pathologize black and brown bodies and say they have communication difficulties, and we can also create disorders, yeah? So this, this thing called, everybody gets, might get mad with me, developmental language disorder, right? It used to be called specific language impairment. Now it's called developmental language disorder. You can't have a developmental language disorder. Where's the gene for that? Mm. But if you can get that into the DSM-5 and you can make people believe that children are born with an inherent difficulty, a lifelong communication difficulty, you've got a client base for a really long time. It legitimizes your profession because it's it, it, it's it's a disorder that only you can treat. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So as you're speaking, right? Like um, our school is a one-way dual language, so we speak Spanish and English. And as I think about um, who are the majority of my students who are receiving speech and language services, it is my bilingual um, Hispanic or Spanish speaking students. Um, well, I, I can tell you wanna jump in Maurice. I, I, that is like, I had never thought of it, right? Like by pathologizing it, you're legitimizing and you will always have clients. That, that was deep. And, and, and you always have black and brown bodies because how else do we commoditize black and brown bodies now that we don't have slavery? Woo, okay, hold on. Things just got real. <laughs> Things just got... I mean, okay, this so, is my opinion. This is just my critical... It's true. Evidence. No, I, I think, as I, you know, Maurice mentioned, our own research and um, presentation and professional development that we provide, like, even what you're saying right now, that's exactly what we're talking about. So we're seeing it. I, I think that what you're saying is, is you make an excellent point. But don't you, sorry, but, but don't you think it's fascinating that uh, it, 
a, a speech and language pathologist that you may employ or engage with will never break it down to you like that. Ever. But mine is mine is a white woman. Mine is too. Hey, break it down. Mm. And I don't think that I was so I, I, I was thinking about like, okay, am I gonna share this episode with my SOP? <laughs> because what would be her response? I don't think she's ready. And not out of necessarily ill intent, right? I think out of systemic understandings, I don't think, I think if I shared this with her, she would go to the, well, she is our union rep, but like she, she would like, like uh, he's bullying me or like, like it would get real, real quick. I've been, so I just don't want to jump in, but I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. So like the, the ideas that I'm sharing didn't just come to me. It's a progression. Sure observation of years and then putting bits and pieces together to to build a picture for myself so what I believe is and it's not all white speech and language therapists but white people some have this inherent belief in meritocracy and they have this inherent belief that the system is fair if you're black or you're brown or you've experienced racism and you know that the system discriminates against you you always critically analyze it and you go down deep inside and it's it's easier for you to see all the cracks in it. Mm-hmm. When, you're, when, when you're white and you haven't experienced that, unless you really do the work, you make an assumption that everything that you're doing is right and good. And so you never question yourself and go, why is 90% of my caseload black and brown boys? Mm-hmm. Is it because black and brown children inherently have communication difficulties or is there something going on with how I'm testing them hmm because they inherently believe that the system is fair yes they don't have to question it you know this is the perfect segue because again I'm so happy that you know I found you on Twitter and I was telling Maurice like, yo, you got to check this out. Um, we want to do a little bit of a Twitter dive, if that's okay with you. I'm going to read a couple of your tweets and then I, you can give me some thoughts. Okay, so I'll take one here because um, you just kind of talked about it, right? Um, the research seeking to legitimize the word gap and then provide solutions to reduce it is not social justice work, but reinforces white supremacy. Yeah. And if you I, I, want to add to that? I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear. Um, there is no such thing as a, as, as a word gap. I remember in my training at university, they taught me that there's a heart, the Hart and Risley study, that there's a 30 million word gap. We learned about that too. I believe that. I believe that. I believed in social deprivation of language. I believe that if you were a poor family, you spoke less to your children, hence why they needed more, they needed speech and language therapy. I did not have the tools to critically analyze. In, when, I, when I was in university because this information was presented to me as fact mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I believed it until I started to to analyze it yeah I mean it doesn't it, it doesn't exist but also it once again it's the commodification it's the monetization it's the people that build careers off the back of pathologizing black and brown bodies mm-hmm. they, you know, they can't keep you on the plantation farm anymore they're going to keep you in their system in another way and mm-hmm. so it's, that's what I believe it is and actually and there's all this stuff about well more vocabulary means more life chances well if systematic racism exists it doesn't matter how good I speak I'm still going to be impacted right mm. I might speak well but I'll still experience it vocabulary more words 
why do you need more words when one is enough mm. so it is so it's this it's this it's this kind of like capitalistic white supremacy thing which is about more this and more that and more this is better that's not true and right. these are times that we have to shift about you know if i know one word for for, for, for um you know if i if i know happy that's great if i want to learn excited that's fine but happy works yeah why do I need to learn 10 different words for that? And it's, mm-hmm. it's this idea of having more, having more, having more, even if you don't use it. Well, and then it goes back to your point of like, it's created to show a problem when there, where there is none, right? Like I have enough words in my repertoire. So like by saying there's this word gap, now suddenly you have a problem. Um, now, you know, white supremacy, capitalistic, all of those words are, um, you know, very, I would want to say controversial. Um, and you have a tweet about, you know, miss me with this narrative because I am a black woman highlighting racism and ableism in our profession. And that makes me divisive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take a little sip for that one, huh? <laughs> true story. I loved it. I loved it. And That's I, a true yes. story that just, I mean, it's, it, I mean, I, I tell you this honestly. I, I am incredibly careful with what I say in terms of if I if, if I, I'm, I'm precise, I'm to the point and I don't point fingers at people or organizations. Right. Because I know that I'm being what I say is being scrutinized because people don't like it. Right. And so I find it so interesting that the narrative exists that I think I wrote a tweet which said that, you know, our profession is the foundations are racist and ab- um, ableist ideologies. That's a very straight and simple thing. And actually that's a fact. That's not something I've made up in my head. It's a fact. And there's this speech and language therapist. And you know, it's, 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 a, it's a white lady. They, 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 girl, always are. They, they always are because they, they love to school you. They, so for the past two years, my, my tweets are not just on the whim, they're intentional. They intention that, and the reason why they're intentional is in my field of speech and language therapy in the UK, we need critical analysis of the way that we work, right? And the only way that we can have that is if I keep saying it. So the issue of our assessments being racist is not going away. So therefore, what are we going to do about it? And if we're not going to do anything about it, I'm going to make sure at every opportunity I mention it till it becomes a thorn in your side. People love it when. You talk about race in a niche way. You talk about once a year at a conference. They sure as hell hate it when you speak about it for two years in a row. It pisses them off, right? So who this lady, I don't even know her, but I know she knows me. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 somebody said to me, you know, well, if, you, if, 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 if speech language therapy is so bad, why are you still in the profession? And it's like, you see racism isn't just people calling you the n-word and 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 doing that it's the subtleties of the language that means basically if you don't like it here why don't you go back home it's the it's the subtlety of if you're complaining about the racism why don't you go somewhere else right and so we know what these narratives are and then I think her friend had to come and defend her and say yes it's it's defy I mean what you're saying is divisive um relentless criticism has happened the people that I follow uh, take me on a journey and I just think B I'm not here to take you on a journey you are not my audience I'm not here for you 
So, but then there is about you. Stop centralizing uh, yourself. And, and, and so this narrative of me being an angry black woman, no matter what I say or do, mm-hmm. is just something, it's a card that they play. So I can make a statement and say speech and language therapy is racist and, and, and has ableist um, ideologies and foundations. That's a fact. When it's a black woman that says that, it makes you seem, they, they, they want to call you angry because they can't silence you. They have no power over you. So the only thing that they can do is, I, I call it triple D. They like to, what, what's it called? I forget what it is anyways. But all I know is that they, 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 will, disc- they will try to um, discredit you. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one that they try to do. They'll, they'll deny um, it. Deny, so, denial. Discredit. And then something else. They, they love to do that. And, oh, distract, and, I think is what it is. Distract, yeah. And, and, it's, yes. this, and it's this narrative. It's so, it's like, it's so pervasive that you don't even, it, it, it's just the narrative that they have. Or, or, I'm sorry, I was like, what a girl, yes. And I know Maurice, you know what I mean, but I know I'm gonna let you jump in. Um, It has also been my experience that they will do something to you or disrespect you. And because you don't allow it and you call them to it. So because you respond, you're suddenly the aggressor, but they did something to you first. Right. And because you address it and they they expect you to not hold them accountable. Right. And if you call them out, it could be as polite as anything. And it will be perceived as an attack on them when they were the ones who tried to attack you first. It's exhausting. I, <laughs> I just want to I, I want to jump in and say and, and um, I think. Lissette and I have talked about this before, that there is a particular intersectionality too when you are a woman of color, right? That, that anger piece is thrown at you a little bit more that because it's, oh, well, sh- she's being emotional. Here's the thing. I got to a place um, in one conversation with a, a, a black female colleague of mine and I, I, I said, yeah, she probably is angry. That's okay, anger is a real emotion. And, and if you went through this every day, you would probably be angry too. So, so you calling me angry as if it's somehow a, a, a slight to me? No, guess what? I'm a human being. And so sometimes things make me angry. And if I express that anger, that's me being human. The issue, of course, is that sometimes we are not given that permission to be human. And, and, and you know, you've mentioned... Uh, or um, where the, you've mentioned, um, you know, the you think about slavery. During slavery, you're not allowed to be angry. Someone could literally hit a person you care about in front of you, and you're not allowed to be angry, right? And so, some of that has transitioned still into our society, where where even though anger is a very real human emotion, and and you think about, uh, I, I was my first year as a as a as an administrator. Um, this six foot three white man, our superintendent at the time came in and was angry. He yelled at us and he was allowed to do that because he was a six foot three white man and he was the one in power. Right. Um, and so there, there, I think there's, there's, there's a piece to, um, all of that. I want to, I want to ask 
a question though, because this has really gotten me thinking critically, particularly because yesterday I sat in the office of my SLP and we were talking about some kids uh, with an IEP um, and we were talking about their need to increase their vocabulary. And so now you've kind of called me to the carpet here because now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, well, let me rethink what I'm saying. I think in order to have success in the system as it currently exists, there is a need for this, but then how do we work to change the system so that way there's less of a need, right? So I think there's this balance. So when I was talking with my wife about the fact that we were going to interview you and um, we kind of got to this conversation of code switching and I'm interested in kind of your perspective on code switching because my wife says to me, she says, well then based on some of the things that you're sharing is code switching. By the way, my wife is a white woman um, who's down for the people though. Let me, let me tell you. I got, she really I got is. I, oh my goodness. Hey, well, hey. The, thing is, the thing is we're down for humanity. I'm, da- I'm down for humanity. So I'm down for everybody that's down for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, um, but she says, okay, so then is code switching, are we really, by celebrating code switching, are we, are we actually celebrating something that, that um, is not a skill? We kind of talk about it as a skill. And I said, you know, for me personally, I thought about having been born and raised in DeKalb, Illinois, which when I was growing up was like 79% white. I was like the only black kid, you know, in class coming through. And so I grew up speaking like I was from DeKalb. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, came into my teen years, and we had an influx of black people coming into the community, and, and I began to become more conscious. I actually adapted uh, and adopted language that had come from folk who were coming from the city and from bigger urban areas, right? So I actually talk about the idea that maybe, you know, um, AAVE or Zebonics, as I call it, is actually my second language, right? Where as what may be considered standard English was my first, you know, that's what I grew up speaking in school until later. But I think about code switching all the time. Yeah, I say all of that to say kind of what's, what's your perspective then on code switching? Firstly, I'd like to say my black doesn't have to sound like your black. So just, just to affirm you there. So there is not a sound like, you sound like you. That, that, that's what you sound oh. like. Um, the, the second thing with code switching is it's, um, I prefer register shifting. Register shifting is when I speak to you, I'm speaking to you differently. When I speak to my gran, I, I change how I speak. When I speak to my dad, I change how I speak. When I speak to um, a partner. So we are always register shifting. It's, it's not a, like a race thing or a class thing. Everybody shifts the register to, to fit where they are at. If you're at a funeral, if you're at a wedding, if you're at a party, if you're talking to a loved one, if you're, we all register shift. So register shifting, that's cool because that's, you know, that is what it is. Code, when, when we make a conscious decision to go, oh, we're going to code switch, that means I'm going to put on my white voice or I'm going to put on my, do you know what I'm saying? And that is, changing your identity to fit in with something because to get more privileges or you feel that that's the way that you should be you can speak aave and 
you know, register shift. So speaking with your with your grandmother, speaking with your mother, speaking with, with your with the pastor or the imam of the mosque, that's register shifting. We all do that. And that is totally normal. Code switching, that conscious decision that I'm now going to put on my white voice. That ain't right. Okay, but can I be can I keep it real? Because I'm always the real honest one. Yeah. I do joke about like, oh, I'm going to work. I got to put on my customer service voice. <laughs> yeah, well, it's something you have to. I, I, for, 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 for and, and I'm going through this shift now with my own identity because I'm like, who am I? Who am I when I'm not like putting on these masks and and doing these different things? Um, there is there is this weird pressure that whenever before a while back, if I was ever going to a professional meeting, was I would put on that yes, 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 and and change my even my whole countenance would be less, you know, like this, and and it would be very that's interesting. Yes, definitely, sure, yeah, I'd love to. So I do that. You're right. I don't do that anymore because I know that I am enough as I am, and if mm-hmm. you the receiver don't receive it that's your business. So now when I go to a meeting, whether it's the biggest professor here or whether it's this or that, I talk how I want to talk. And I, and because, get, because I deserve to talk how I want to talk. So there hey. is a, a kind so of girl, you can, yes. You can, shift, you can register shift where you, where you, you know, you, you, you keep to the tone of where you are because that's, that, that's a societal norm, but you bring all of you because actually, now that I bring all of me everywhere, number one, it's easier to be me. Number two, I'm more likable. And number three, I, I feel like this stress off my shoulders and it allows me to think more freely mm-hmm. and connect with people. So these are the benefits of taking off that mask. But it's very hard because we've been programmed to do, to, we just, you just automatically will do it. Mm-hmm. You'll go to the bank and suddenly you'll shift. You know, it's so interesting to hear you. Like, okay, I often used to think like I, I've, I'm I'm on this journey myself where I am growing in the comfort of who I am um, and trying to be authentically me in all settings. Um, but there were times where, you know, when you are a person of color, you do feel like if you don't represent your community well, then you're not doing them any favors. But I also think that by putting on that mask that you speak of, it's actually causing more damage because now you're suddenly the exception and not the norm. And so you need to be able to hear me speak the way that I speak authentically and still see me as an intelligent, competent, loving individual. Um, and so that actually perhaps can cause more damage to your community as opposed to, you know, trying to shift perceptions. But, and, and also with this whole paradigm shifting of norm, like what is the good version of you like? Or mm-hmm. what is the professional version of you like? Or the scholarly version of you like? And that's like, those are all kind of concepts. It's you as you are. And you have to learn to 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 like deconstruct all of the other stuff that you've learned about your identity where you've been shamed. And it's not just like in white spaces, it's more is probably in, in black spaces. If you went to, and they go, oh, well, you, well, you, you sound white. And, and it's that not being accepted. And it's like, actually, no, I sound how I sound. And I mm-hmm. am who I am, whether this community likes it or this community likes it 
I'm always going to be me here, here and here. I'm going to I'm going to constantly be me instead of having to shift who I am, because that's not fair on me. That 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 is damaging to your sense of self. You're my kind of girl. We might have to do a, a second episode, like a follow-up. Some joint PD. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm thinking. So it's maybe yeah, some joint PD. It's so refreshing well, to be with someone. I'm so sorry, Maurice. It's just so refreshing to be with someone who gets it. Like, it is. It's it's great. Yeah. We want to thank you so much uh, for uh, taking the time to be with us today. We have a tradition here at BBB. Um, and speaking of being my true self, uh, my true self is a dog owner. So you may hear my dog going wild in the background. I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there. Um, but uh, we have a tradition here at BBB that we like to ask our guests to leave us with some parting words. If there was one thing, um, you know, folk fast forwarded to the end of the episode, and this was the one thing you wanted them to walk away with, uh, what, what would that be? I'm going to say my little statement. Speech and language therapy as a profession is biopolitical, colonial, and racist, and I stand on that. She said it, folks. She ain't back it up. So you what's up? She, she said what she said. Drop the mic. Okay, it is what it is. And if y'all <laughs> want to fight about it, we can fight about it. <laughs> thank, thank you again uh, for joining us for Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I am Maurice McDavid. And I'm Lisa Jacobson. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios. Thank <laughs> you.